and I have prepared something to say, and so I will say it. But before I get started, uh, did every, does anybody have leftovers left from Thanksgiving? Raise your hand. Still? Your turkey wasn't good enough then, huh? You didn't eat it quick enough. Uh, who's got a tree up? Raise your hand. All right. Very good. Live trees or fake trees? Live, raise your hand. All right, live, yep. My wife always makes us go cut down a live tree. I like live trees very much, but um, I would just go somewhere and have them loaded on the top of my truck, you know, my van. But instead, we choose a tree like we choose a show of Netflix, you know. We just keep walking around the lot and the, the place, and we never find something. And after an hour, then the threshold has been met, and then we can choose a tree. So that's the way it works. Uh, by the time on Netflix, Netflix is not usually so successful. We look for an hour of find something to watch, and then by that time we're like, we're tired, let's go to bed, you know? So we actually, it's good. We don't watch a lot of TV because we can never choose some to watch. But anyway, um, it's very good to have you guys here. Thank you for braving the weather, and we'll have a good Sunday this morning. I want to talk to you in this first Sunday of Advent about waiting. It's something we all hate to do. We all hate to wait. I will go, when I go to Wegmans, I will take my cart and I will go up and down that kind of aisle choosing a place. And I will switch aisles four or five times trying to get the right, you know, lane. Uh, My parents live in Michigan, so every time I go visit my parents in Michigan, I have to go through customs. And I, I always choose one. And as soon as I get in that lane at customs, I always look at the car next to me, and then I'm always grumpy if the car next to me gets through faster. And it doesn't matter which lane I choose, it's always the worst one. If I can, I try to force myself into another lane, uh, but it never works. Um, It's packed at customs. Um, We all hate waiting. The only thing that makes waiting worth it is if the thing that we're waiting for is worth the wait, right? The only thing that makes waiting worth it is if the thing that we're waiting for is worth the wait. Like if you buy a really expensive piece of meat and then you cook it up, you know, you got to rest that thing. You buy a, a good steak and you got to tent it and let it rest. Otherwise, you cut that thing open and it's going to be dry as a bone. You know, all the juices will run out. So you got to let it rest. But you're willing to put those 15 minutes in to wait for that steak because you want it juicy, right? Whatever we're waiting for, um, we have to wait. But we only wait if the thing that we are waiting for is worth that wait. This morning, we start a four-week series during the month of Advent, in which we celebrate the coming of God into our midst. And the Advent season celebrates three comings. It celebrates the coming of God in the past, at the manger, when Jesus, born of a virgin, came into this world, lived the life we should have, and died the death we deserve, and rose from the dead. We celebrate the coming of God into our midst in the present, through the people of God, who the Bible talks about us like we are the body of Christ. We are Christ incarnate, his body, and we celebrate the coming of God into our midst and the coming of Christ in the present through the sacrificial acts of love that you and I do in this world. And we celebrate the coming of God in the future. The ultimate hope of Christianity, when Jesus will one day return, right? The once and future king, the king who has come and is coming again. We celebrate and look towards with hope the coming of Christ in the future, when Christ will come one day and set up an eternal, physical, and perfect kingdom. The text that we just heard read for us a moment ago describes what that kingdom will kind of look like, and it describes how we are to wait for that kingdom. The text that Karen read just a few moments ago is the main text for this morning, so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles there. It's found in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 30. Uh, If you're using one of the blue Bibles that we provide in the seat in front of you, it's on page 916. And as we launch our series this morning, the the sermon for this morning is entitled, The Promise We Are Waiting For. And we're really looking at this text through the lens of two questions. The first is, what is the promise we are waiting for? What is the payoff? The second is, how are we to wait for that promise in the meantime? How are we to wait for that promise in the meantime? And the text that we're looking at this morning as we begin the Advent season, as we look towards the future coming of Christ, is understanding that Christ will come again and looking towards that with hope. But unless we understand how that, unless we understand what the hope is that we're waiting for is, it's going to be a lot harder to wait for it, especially if it's not worth it, right? And if you've already opened your text, you can see that Paul is going to tell you it is, right? The present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will follow. Verse 18. And this text not only tells us um, the promise that we are waiting for, but it also tells us how we are to wait for that promise. What is it to look like as we wait for the promise to come? And once we understand what it looks like for us to wait for the promise to come— and we go through the inevitable tension of experiencing life between the two comings, of the first coming and the second coming of Christ, if we understand what the in-between time is going to look like, it will not take us by surprise when it comes. So that's a little bit ambiguous, but I promise by the end it will not be. Let's get right into it. Romans chapter 8. What is the promise we are waiting for? The promise we are waiting for is nothing short of this, the restoration of all creation. The restoration of all of creation. Notice in our text that creation in verses 18 through about 22, 23, creation is personified, right? It's a figure of speech that Paul uses, and he talks about creation as if it's a living being, a a human being, personification. Uh, Creation here is said to be In two states, right? It's groaning and it's enslaved. It's groaning and it's enslaved. And notice in our text that the groaning of creation, verse uh, uh, 19 and 20, is not by its own choice, but by the will of another, right? And what is it that the creation itself longs for? Well, it longs for the children of God to be revealed, verse 19. The children of God to be revealed. You see, creation, uh, and this is not a sermon on environmentalism, but I suppose it could be, right? Creation itself is under the throes of human decision gone wrong, where the very world itself is rebelling against the wrong decisions of humanity. Now, this comes right from the very beginning. We have to understand what God's original divine design was right from the outset. And to do so, I'm going to invite you to turn into only one other passage in the Bible. It's the only other place I'm going to have you turn. It's found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. And we're going to see what God's original divine design was for creation. Original divine design. Creation in its present state, Paul says, is enslaved, it is groaning, and it is longing for the children of God to be revealed. But what was God's original plan for creation? Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, 
and you don't get to say this often, but that's found on page one. Page one. Okay, and here it is. Then God said, this is the pinnacle of creation. In Genesis 1, this is day six, right? The last thing God created. Then God said, let us make mankind or humanity, right? In our own image, in our likeness, so that they, right? They may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind or humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them together. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and to all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. You see, because God's original divine design was man and woman together would rule and subdue this earth and tend for it, right? And do you notice the language? It's very similar to Romans chapter 8. And if you have there, you can turn back there. Mankind was supposed to rule over, male and female together. Together, man and woman make up the image of God, not one without the other, both together. And both together are meant to rule over all of creation. And as they rule over creation, creation will experience God's divine design, and the world will be free and in harmony and function as it should. But the ironic thing in the language in these texts is humanity has failed in its uh, obligation and its responsibility to rule over the world, to tend and to subdue and to rule. And as a result, because man did not rule, humanity did not rule over the world, what is the world? It's enslaved. And the world is longing for restoration. And when will that restoration come? Romans chapter 8, verse 19. When the children of God are revealed and humanity is put to rights and we rule over the world, not in a way that enslaves it and causes the world to not live in harmony, but in a way in which the world functions as it was intended to from the first place. Man and woman ruling in equality, in oneness, not where one is trying to rule over the other, right? Trying to subject the other. This is a result of the fall. You can read uh, Genesis chapter 3, right? God's divine design is that humanity rules the world and tends after it and that the world functions and flourishes as it was designed in perfect harmony. And how does this look? The Bible has all kinds of images for this. The Bible talks of it as though uh, a new heaven and a new earth will come in which God will dwell with his people. A place where justice covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. A place where the righteousness of God shines like the sun in the kingdom of our father. A place where the lion will lay down with the lamb, right? That's a weird image. A place where the infant can play beside a viper's nest, Isaiah chapter 11, and even put their hand down the snake hole 
and the snake will play with the little infant and not bite it, right? I hate snakes. I don't want to touch anything near a snake, right? But do you see all these images where creation itself is not against each other, where mankind is not rebelling against each other, male and female and male and male and female and female, where uh, the creation does not rebel against humanity in the form of earthquakes, hurricanes, and uh, shark attacks, right? All of this stuff where the world itself functions in peace and harmony, where creation will live in harmony, and where God will dwell physically with his people, the restoration of all things. And do you know the picture of this? It is this. When God restores all things, God's presence will come from heaven and dwell on earth permanently with his people, and God will make his dwelling place with us. And justice will not be marred by injustice. And beauty will not be destroyed by ugliness. And relationships will not be broken by infighting and gossip and ugliness. And freedom will be true, where we make decisions of our own free will and we are not destroyed by the making the decisions of them, right? And where our spiritual life with God will be in perfect harmony. This is the restoration of all things, where everything functions as it should. This is the promise we wait for. Now, the kicker to this text, Romans chapter 8, and this, this to me is what makes it worth for you coming out this morning on this really horrible day, um, is the reminder of how we wait for this promise. You need your heart to be fit. If you are going to live between the two comings well, you need your heart and your mind filled with a true picture of what the future glory is. For that future glory is so great that our present sufferings cannot even compare to the glory that will one day be revealed, right? Chapter 8, verse 18. You need your heart and your mind filled with that picture, but then secondly, you need to have a better understanding of what it looks like to wait patiently, right? Verse 25, to wait patiently with hope. And what does Paul say it looks like to wait patiently with hope? right? To understand this fully, we have to get the full context of this uh, section. And we see it in verse 17. And here's what Paul says it looks like to wait patiently with hope. And here is how we, uh, we wait for the promise to come. Chapter 8, verse 17 tells us this, that the way we wait for the promise to come is we share in the sufferings of Christ. Now, that does not sound like a very uplifting Advent sermon, right? I promise you it is, and hopefully you will see it in a moment. But do you see what the text says? Chapter 8, verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. That sounds pretty good. Who doesn't want to be an inheritor, right? We want to inherit things. Maybe once in your life you've had something where you've all of a sudden done nothing for it, and all of a sudden you find out that you've inherited something. This happened to me once in my life. My grandma... She actually didn't die. She gave all of us as her grandkids an inheritance. And she was kind of, she's now passed, but she was kind of crotchety then. And she actually just wanted to stick it to the government. So she gave away a ton of her money and put herself below a certain tax bracket so the government wouldn't get her money. So I inherited a bunch of money because my grandma was angry at the government. God can take anything and use it for good, right? 
This is pretty much actually how I went to college. Now, anyway, inheriting is good. Now, how do we inherit the glory that will be revealed, which our present sufferings cannot compare with? How do we do it? Verse 17, we share in the sufferings of Christ in order that we may share in his glory. We share in the sufferings of Christ in order that we might share in his glory. You see, Paul assumes the fact of suffering as a dark backdrop against which the glorious future of Christ and his coming will shine with even greater intensity. Yes? Now, sharing in the suffering of Christ is not suffering by itself. If you were to go to the Webster Dictionary or something and you were to look up what does it mean to suffer, it would mean something like this, to go through pain, distress, or hardship, right? To go through pain, distress, or hardship. But sharing in the sufferings of Christ is not simply going through pain, distress, or hardship. There are all kinds of pains that you and I experience, perhaps, that we have not chosen, right? There are pains for me to probably come that I did not choose. Those of you who get arthritis and it hurts to walk. I know my mom is in this state. She did not choose or want this to happen, right? Uh, Some of us go through distress where something horrible happens. Sometimes we see in the news people's houses burned down. We recently had some people in this very community in Bloomfield where somebody's house burnt down. This is a suffering, but it is not sharing in the suffering of Christ. It is a suffering where some distress happened to them. And of course, this whole world lives in hardship some of them a great deal. And it's easy for us here to ignore some of these realities. But did you know the world is approximately made up of 8 billion people? And if I have my stats right, about 2 billion of them live less than than $2 a day. That's kind of a big deal. If they get rice, they're happy, right? That's a good day of eating. And I complain, one of the hardest days in our marriage was when my wife made cheese soup, you know, and there was no meat, you see? I don't want to talk about that very long, but I've learned to overcome. I do like cheese, but I don't want cheese soup as my only meal. And cheese is super high calorie, so I get a double whammy. High calorie, low fulfillment. Now, never mind. That doesn't really matter. But the basic idea here is... uh, Two billion people live on less than $2 a day. This is not something they chose. But yet, they are suffering, but I would say they're not going through the suffering of Christ. Maybe they are in other ways, but by the very nature of just simply having your house born down or living on very little money or getting a disease or arthritis, that is not suffering in the sharing, sharing in the suffering of Christ by its nature. It is simple suffering, going through pain, distress, or hardship. So what does it look like then to share in the sufferings of Christ? You can still share in his sufferings if you are just plain suffering, but sharing in the sufferings of Christ is something unique, and here's what it is. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ is not going through pain, distress, or hardship by itself. Sharing in the suffering of Christ is engaging with a broken world to bring restoration. We share in the suffering of Christ when we intentionally engage in, the bro- in a broken world, with the broken world, to bring restoration. And I would suggest to you that this sharing in the sufferings of Christ is an inevitable, inevitable outcome of being a Christ-following 
Christian person, a Christ-following Christian coming, Christian person, to live in between the two comings of Christ in the context of this world that is broken and dying, apart from Christ, in a world where murder, rape, stealing, hunger, starvation, all this stuff happens, all of this brokenness is going on, to live in between the two comings of Christ in a broken world with the light of Christ shining brightly in our hearts, to share in the sufferings of Christ means we walk towards the suffering and brokenness of people to shine the light of Jesus into this world. That's what it means. To share in the sufferings of one another. To walk towards brokenness and to do it intentionally. Because the light of Christ shines so brightly. And perhaps you'll remember this language. It comes from John chapter 1 verse 5. Uh, the light shines in the darkness. Do you remember how this goes? And the darkness has not overcome it. Right? The, line sh- the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it, cannot overcome it. If we as Christ-following Christians are going to look towards the future hope when God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we do so knowing, knowing that we will walk towards brokenness in the present to shine the light of Christ into a lost and dying world that needs the hope of Jesus. And we do this, and it's a perfect day to talk about this because we've just finished a series looking at the life of Jesus, right? And what did Jesus do in all of the stories that we looked at? He always engaged with a broken and dying world. He moved towards brokenness. He engaged with the deaf, the lame, the blind, (laughs) those who were spiritually dead, And he engaged with them, and his light shined brightly, and the darkness could not overcome it. And did the darkness try? Well, of course it tried. The darkness put Jesus on a cross, put him to death, and the darkness could not overcome it because the light of the resurrection three days later, right? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And Jesus, if he is our example, and if the light of Christ shines brightly in our own hearts, then the darkness cannot overcome you. There are times in my own life where the light of Christ does not shine as brightly as I would like. Is that true for you sometimes? I'm sure it is. But the first task then is not to disengage and go into bomb shelters, right? The first task then is to engage with the person and the reality of Jesus so that his uh, presence and reality might shine brightly in our life so that we can rediscover the glory of the brightness of the light of Jesus Christ so that we might then re-engage and share in the sufferings of Christ so that we might share in his glory through engaging with a broken world to bring light and restoration. It is in moments when the light of Christ shines dimly in our hearts that That should be a warning and a reminder that we must re-engage with Christ in new ways to have his light shine brighter. And this particular text is such a blessing to us because it gives us three reminders about what it looks like to share in the suffering of Christ and three encouragements about doing it so that you can sustain it, right? And here are the reminders or the encouragements. First, 
we do not suffer alone. Verse 26 and 27. For we have the Holy Spirit within us who who prays for us when we don't even know to pray and all we can do is groan. Have you ever suffered so much that all you could do is groan? Sometimes it's a groaning that's even, uh, you know, not, it's literal, right? Like, You suffer and you just get in bed at the end of the night. It might not even be physical pain. It might be emotional pain. And you just get in bed at the end of the night and you just go like this. Oh, you know. And then sometimes your groaning is metaphorical and it's a darkness of your mind, a dark night of the soul that maybe no one else can see. But when you put your head on the pillow, it is there. The promise that Paul gives us in sharing in the suffering of Christ is we do not suffer alone. And what is that? suffering not alone look like? Look at the text with me in 26 and 27. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For even when we do not know what to pray, the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. We don't... He is, he is making words for us that we may not even understand. I, I, I don't even understand this hardly in practice. I understand it like this. This is how I apply this text. I don't think I understand the full grasp of what it says, but what I understand it to be is when I don't have the strength to pray, I sit still and quiet and allow the Spirit of God's presence to speak for me. Do I always know that he is doing so? Not through any physical means. You know, there's no like bell in my mind going ding, ding, ding. The Spirit's doing this now, you know. There's no red light. You know, it's not like Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer and the, light, the nose goes red and they're like, oh, that's awesome. The Spirit's praying for me. I, I take it by faith. I read the text and the text tells me, the Bible tells me, Paul tells us, when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit is praying for us with groanings that we cannot understand. And so how do I apply this text? I'm sure there's more to it than I understand, but here's how I do it. When I am tempted to self-medicate my groanings, I sit there quietly and I ask God, please show yourself to me. And I slow down and don't do stupid stuff, right? When so many people groan, what do they do? They do stupid stuff with alcohol. They do stupid stuff with sex. They do stupid stuff with TV. They do stupid stuff with food, right? They overeat. They overwatch. They, they over a lot of things, right? Slow down. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ means engaging with a broken world. And will that deplete you at times? Of course it will. When you don't know what to pray, you are not alone. When you don't know what to do, you are not alone. Sometimes just slow down and don't self-medicate. But we're not just promised that we're not alone. We are also promised that our suffering is not without purpose, right? Our suffering is not without purpose. Verse 28, and we know. This is really strong language. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have, called, have been called according to his purpose, right? We do not suffer alone and we do not suffer without purpose. When we lose purpose, we lose life. This is just true, right? We lose life. There was a study that was done where they hired these guys to dig a pit, right? And they dug a pit, and they were going to pay him $10 an hour. And at the end of the day, they paid him their 10 bucks an hour. And the next day, they came to the work site, and they said, all right, fill that pit in, and then dig it again. And today, we're going to pay you $15 an hour. Half the people were like, well, there's no purpose in that. So they left, and the other ones were like, well, I get $15 an hour. 
And so they did it, and they filled it, and they, they dug it back out. And the next day they came, and they're like, all right, we want you to do the same thing. Fill the pit back in that you dug, dig it out again, and we're going to pay $20 an hour. Everybody left, right? There's no purpose in life. Then there's no life. And with that God, when we suffer, there is always purpose. It does not mean that God causes the bad things in our life to happen. I do not believe that. I do not believe God is the origin of rape, murder, starvation, gossip. He's not the origin of it. But when we move towards brokenness to bring restoration, there is always purpose in the bringing of the light. For God works in all things to his good purpose for those who are called and love him. And lastly, we are promised a certain future. We do not suffer without the promise of glory. We see in verses 29 and 30 as it ends that all those who God knew, foreknew, and predestined, he called. And all those he called, he justified or saved. And all those he saved, he glorified. For those of us who have the Spirit of God indwelling in our hearts through faith in the Son of God who died and rose from the dead for, for us, and who have the Spirit of God dwelling us in us, no matter how far away the hope of God feels, the restoration of all things feels, it is certain. And God's word will not go unfulfilled. The restoration of all things is coming. And in the meantime, what will it look like? Sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And if the one who we purport to follow, that we say we follow, if the one we say we follow, his following led him in this broken world to a crucifixion, death by crucifixion, then do not be surprised that if your following of Jesus will lead you towards suffering, but notice that in his entire life that Jesus always, even in his last act on the cross before his resurrection, he moved towards engagement with the world for the hope of restoration, and so must we. I pray to God for all of us that that act of engaging with the world will lead to as little suffering as possible. Because I'm not like some weirdo that looks forward to suffering. I once fainted at a TB test, okay? I do not like to suffer. But do not be surprised when it happens. And the glory that will be revealed is so much greater to the point where it cannot even compare with the sufferings of our present time. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your love and we're grateful for the gift of your son that this season reminds us of that he emptied himself by taking on humanity so that (laughs) we might be given a name above every name that we might be exalted through his humiliation. And we look forward to that day when you will return. And we look forward and we look at your son now who's been exalted and been given a name above every name, not because he did, uh, he forced everybody to bow down to him, but because he gave his life willingly and sacrificed him and you have exalted him and given us a chance at salvation. And so we pray that the Spirit of God might work in all of our lives this morning to see the beauty and the reality of Jesus 
and to place our hope and faith in him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning we move towards the communion table. Jesus taught his disciples that when they gathered together, they were to celebrate this meal and they were to celebrate it until that time when Jesus would come again. And so we do this again this morning. We come together and we remind ourselves that we are the agents of light in this world until Jesus comes a second time, for we are the body of Christ. And for those of you who've placed your faith in Jesus, I invite you forward this morning to come forward to receive of the elements that represent Christ's broken body and shed blood, to take them and hold them in your hands, to return to your seat, to hear the music of the Christmas doxology pour over you, to listen to the words, and to remind yourself of what Jesus has done. And in the moment of silence before I come to to lead us in partaking together, I pray that you would reflect on how you can engage with this world at a deeper level to be a bringer of the light. At this time, would you please come? Praise God who came in infant low to bear our flesh and grace bestow born in our lonely manger stall a child who shall redeem us child is born today Emmanuel in flesh displayed to once for all his people say rejoice give thanks
This is Christ's body, which is broken for you. And this is Christ's blood, which is shed for you.